Welcome to the Governance Podcast from the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society. My name's Mark Pennington and I'm the Director of the Centre here at King's College London. As part of our current project on the political economy of knowledge and ignorance, we're looking at the relationship between power and knowledge production. In conditions where there may be uncertainty about the nature of truth, then who gets to decide what truth is or who gets to police the truth and what are the effects on people from this policing. These are, of course, concerns that were central to the work of the French social theorist Michel Foucault. One of the domains of governance where these issues are particularly salient today is that of digital governance, and in particular content moderation on various digital platforms. So I'm very pleased that we have with us today Professor Terry Flew, all the way from the University of Sydney in Australia, where he's the Professor of Digital Communication and Culture. Terry is the author of numerous articles and books, the most recent of which is Digital Platform Regulation, Global Perspectives on Internet Governance. Terry, it's great to have you with us here today at the Centre and at King's. So I wonder if we could start off with you just telling us a little bit about yourself. How did you get interested in this whole area of digital communications and governance of the internet? Well, first of all, Mark, thanks very much for inviting, inviting me to be here. And it's, it's wonderful to be at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society and to be with the Department of Political Economy. My own background is in political economy, where I did my bachelor's and master's degrees at the University of Sydney, including doing my bachelor's with the current Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese. So my, my interest, so I've always had an interest in, I guess, the political economy of knowledge. And as someone who went from the University of Sydney to the one of the newer universities in Australia, the University of Technology, found that those institutions are very strong in the communications field. So communications, journalism, media studies, film, those very much the areas of, the, of those universities of technology in particular. And at both UTS and then subsequently at the Queensland University of Technology, I was very involved in developing the, the media programs. And of course, the nature of the media program shifted quite significantly from about the mid to late 1990s, yeah. and they increasingly came to be about the internet. And there, I guess, we found that the question of what were the differences and what were the similarities between digital communication and other forms of communication continues to pervade the sector that early I think in the early discussions around the internet, the view was it was all radically different. You had to throw out the old rule books. We were in a new, a new world. Mm. And over time, that perception of the digital has, I, th- I think, declined, which is not to deny there are some very significant differences. But I think the idea that everything to do with the digital is unprecedented mm. is, is a harder position to hold. And I had the the opportunity in 2011, I was invited by the then Australian government to chair a review of the national classification system, which is all of the various forms of media content classification, including internet governance. And of course, the complexities raised by internet governance for this field are, are very, very considerable. And a lot of, and in that case, a lot of the old ways of doing things are actually very hard to pursue in in the new environment. At the same time, the underlying questions, principles, debates have parallels Mm. over over time. And and I think it's there that we can start to trace how 
some of these things around content moderation, internet governance, which always seem like completely new questions, mm. nonetheless have certain historic antecedents. And I had the good fortune to identify the French philosopher Michel Foucault as someone who potentially has something quite interesting to say in this space. Well, let's come on to, to Foucault in a minute. But before we get into that, I wonder if we just going back to what you were saying there about your own background, saying that you actually have a background in political economy, because what strikes me as being quite strange is how there's relatively little, in my experience, interdisciplinary connection between people who do political economy, especially economics, the economic mm. side of it, and the field of culture, culture, mm. media, communications, that sort of thing. I mean, do, do you have any sense of why that is from your own experience? Is it just that they work with different concepts? or? Well, uh, fields, fields like media economics are quite small in the, the economics yeah. uh, discipline, and having co-authored a book on media economics, I'm aware that a lot of economists don't feel that, yeah. that that's real real economics. Yeah. I think it's it's fair to say. Yeah. At the same time, the whole field of the economics of information, if you like, I'm mm. thinking about Fritz yeah. Macklup, I'm thinking about yeah. Daniel Bell, that that whole tradition, Hayek, yeah. is is there. I think your your comments about you know the economics of knowledge, but also the economics yeah. of ignorance, yeah. are there as well. And I. I I think, or at least I'd hope, that with some loosening of the very strict regime of the neoclassical paradigm, which people mm. certainly learnt in the 1980s in the introduction yep. of behavioural and experimental yep. approaches and so forth, those questions of how people come to mm. make decisions mm. are increasingly important. As a, as a side issue, I would say that at QUT I was in, very involved in developing courses around creative industries, and creative industries provided an interesting point of intersection between culture, knowledge, information on the one hand, and industry, markets, economy on the other. Well, it's really interesting you say this because I just did a podcast actually a couple of days ago with Diane Coyle, mm-hmm. uh, and you know she was talking about how the idea of network effects, which is something that is a significant concept in economics is absolutely mm. relevant to this whole question of platforms, mm. the digital world. But there aren't actually that many economists who've really sort of taken it up and run with it to think through, well, what does this mean in terms of the way we think about the way particular markets are configured, what kind of rules might be be relevant to them. So it's good to know that you're in this space. <laughs> yeah, and there are others doing it. I think, for instance, Richard Caves wrote, the Harvard economist wrote one of the first books on creative industries, and he came at it from the perspective of institutional economics. And mm. there was a lot of insights there into the nature of contracts, the yep. what's known as the Hollywood model and how it extends out more widely. I, I think there's there's quite a bit of, yeah, you know, I've found quite a bit of fruitful intersection in those spaces myself. Excellent. Well, you mentioned in your opening remarks there that you have this interest in in, in Foucault. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about what made you start to make connections between Foucault's work and this kind of space about thinking about the internet and how, that it, how it's governed? I would say it's the combination of two things. The first, the first has always been a sense, and I certainly got this when I did the work for the Law Reform Commission, that the, the, binary, the binary opposition around censorship versus freedom didn't seem mm. quite right. And, yeah. There's, there's a lot of debates we can have as to the as to the, the nature of freedom and there'll be more more to be said about that. But the idea that freedom and constraint are these kind of mm. absolute opposites, states yeah. on yeah. polar opposites didn't seem 
quite right. And Foucault is someone who talks about the production of freedom and the consumption of freedom and so on. I also became interested in in the concept of neoliberalism mm. because there'd be those those who would say that anyone talking about you know the economics of culture and so on this is the neoliberalization of culture or you know yeah. the the reduction of you know intrinsic value to to, to, commo- to yeah to commodification in the market and so forth and typically Foucault was cited in that in that light but when you actually go and read Foucault on neoliberalism, it's a lot less clear-cut mm. than that, that account would, would suggest. He's certainly not just saying it's the dominant ideology of right. late capitalism or, or something like that. And in fact, he's quite interested in the ideas of those who would come to take the role of neoliberals, whether it be the German auto-liberals mm. or the mm. American Chicago School and so on. And I think that that was interesting. So the, the intersection of those those points I found interest interest here. I mean, the, the, the area where I find his ideas interesting in this sense is how we've had a sort of transformation from maybe the early the, the early age of the, inter, in, the internet was people spoke about it almost as though it was this new realm of freedom, a kind of anarchic realm. Mm. And over time, it's become progressively governed. Mm, mm. <laughs> but it's beca- become governed in sort of different ways. And... Uh, Foucault has that very interesting notion of governmentality where you've got this intersection between sovereign rule, which is sort of direct Mm. commands, but then also you've got discipline where you've got sort of people being judged against norms. And then you've got his ideas about sort of security mechanisms or biopower where there's government going on, but it's at a kind of at a distance through Mm. various sort of mechanisms that encourage monitoring and this sort of thing. So... If you think about the way the internet has gone from this kind of anarchic realm to mm. this governed space, all those different dimensions seem to be involved when we think about the issues of content moderation or, or whatever mm. it may be. Is that a fair take on it? Yeah, I mean, governance practices have always been been patchy. Even at even at I think the height of the the notion that the internet and globalization would you know trans transform everything, there was. About a third of the world where that that didn't apply, yeah. and people people would say, "Oh, you know, of course, China's an exception. Well, it's a pretty big exception, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's and yeah, it, yeah, and yeah. it's become a bigger bigger exception exception over over time. And I think also there's there's if you like been a sort of three way movement. I, I talk about a three way movement in the history of the internet that you have the open the open internet. But you you have the rise of platforms as is that offer a way of managing the open internet. So yeah. you could track, for instance, the move from blogging to Facebook mm. is an interesting mm. case in case in point here. And the way that they order and organise and enable social media, the way that you know Google allows for search without having to yeah. remember you know HTTP, whatever, yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever. And and all this and so so as consumers we buy into a platform bargain, but that means that what we call the internet or the global network is increasingly something that's uh, that's governed and managed mm. by by private private entities. Mm. And uh that that means that there's there's a kind of a visibility to governance and Governance questions have always been around. One of my favourite early instances is the court case that the French government took up against Dahu in 2000 around 
the uh, the selling of Nazi memorabilia mm. on on the Yahoo mm. France site. And this this pointed to the tensions between a global platform on the one hand and national jurisdiction on the other. And those those tensions have continued to play out. And in, and indeed, I think we're in a current environment where. We've had this platformization of the internet, but we've also had regulators, legislators, civil society organisations feel increasingly emboldened around the expectation that something needs to be done around the issues of concern raised with the platformized internet, whether they be competition policy issues or content issues or public shocks or privacy issues and so on. So we have a lot of regulatory activism in this in this space at the moment that is playing out differently from one one country to the next but i think it's it's significant that this is coming from the liberal democracies so the idea that you had this polarity between the liberal democracies and the open internet on the one hand and the authoritarian states and the governed internet on the other well it's it's much more mixed up well, there's certainly, I mean, I, I'm not sure what it was like in Australia, but certainly here during the pandemic, there were a lot of concern raised by some of the groups who were, shall we say, sceptical of the lockdown measures, mm. that they were being censored in terms of what they could say, mm. in terms of things being taken down on YouTube, and then, you know, stories coming out that basically that was almost done in cahoots with the administration's. I mean, so that that sounds like the kind of thing that the caricature would be. This is what goes on in China, but actually, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's it's you know, the, it's 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 a shift in the way that we think about censorship. That the classic model of censorship would be something like the Lady Chatterley's Lover yeah. trial, where you know we a whole range of measures follow from the debates that you know got a hearing in that in that trial around the importance of context, artistic merit, et cetera, et cetera. And and more generally, the question of too much government interference in what what were felt to be matters of of personal personal choice. So that form of censorship has been declining over time. And it's always had certain paradoxical effects, like certainly in Australia, nothing raises the profile of otherwise obscure films than the government trying to ban them. You know, it's a a version of the the Streisand effect, so people go off and see see a film for fear that it it might otherwise be banned. And so you have that sort of classification regime that replaces that. But you have what the Yale legal scholar Jack Balkin refers to now as the free speech triangle. Whereas the traditional censorship debate has been the state versus the individual, you now have a third entity in this, which is these these private actors who can order order and arrange arrange speech, and their practices um, are a lot more obscure than those of of government agencies, mm. and and so they and they they constantly face around whether they're overblocking on the one hand whether they're insufficiently blocking yeah. on the other these these overlay with you know mm. partisan political debates mm. and there's there's mm. all sorts of things going on but they are acting in this sort of quasi governmental mm. manner but without 
without the sort of institutional legitimacy that whether whether or not you agree with the policies of the government of the day, you, you, there is understanding as to why they're they're the yeah. government of the day. But these are you know quasi sovereign hmm. sovereign entities without that underlying legitimacy. So if we think about again going back to to Foucault about this. If we think that the internet is becoming this governed space, whether by these private agencies or sort of connections between them and, and governments, do we connect that to some kind of overarching discourse about the way in which people understand what the internet is for and the kind of activities that are going on there? Is it through some kind of narrative that that is out mm. there that people are, have come to see this as a space that ought to be governed in some way or other, or that it that it is in fact being governed in ways that they hadn't maybe previously thought about? Well, people are not the only agents in this yeah. in this space. So there's, I mean, advertisers are a very yeah. important entity here. And, and the history of copyright on the internet has told us that platforms can always moderate content if they wish. And I think it was the House of Commons inquiry in the wake of the, the Joe Cox mm-hmm. uh, murder that where... In the report, the final report, they pointed out the speed with which YouTube could remove yeah. copyright infringing content, as compared to you know, the relative slowness with which content that could be seen to be promoting violence would, you know, be dealt with on on the platform. And the platforms are very sensitive to that. They're also very sense. The advertisers are very conscious of what what sits alongside. Their, their brand. So advertisers are a stakeholder in this, politicians are a stakeholder in this, various civil society organisations are stakeholders in, in all of this. It's not an easy life for, for, for a platform. And these are very, you know, these are decisions that are being made typically in very rapid fire fashion. But if we think about, so you say that there's the, when we think about the, the governance here, there's the issue that there might be too little content moderation, mm. but also the concern that there might be too much. If mm. we take the concern that there may be too little, it's again maybe trying to connect it to this notion of a sort of a discourse that's out there. Mm. Uh, and it seems to me that area is has been affected by concerns about anxieties about, say, what children are doing on the internet, mm. what they're being mm. exposed to. There are also anxieties about terrorism. Mm. Is the internet a space where terrorist groups can? So those are kind of anxieties about. Is the internet a kind of safe space yeah. in the sense of the things that are going on there? And, and, and that seems to be the kind of concern about there being not enough content moderation. Would that be accurate? That, that's right. That's right. That harms, I, th- I think if you were to say there's, in the first stage, freedom of speech discourses dominate. There's some wonderful, you know, if you look at the, the striking down of the uh, Communications Decency Act in 1997 in the US Supreme Court and some of the literature on that i think mike godwin the who who we are the phrase godwin's law to observed you know give give people give people give people a modem a computer and access to a network and they're more likely to do good than do harm mm. that's mm. an emblematic statement statement of the yeah. era and insofar as they promote mistruth yeah. other voices will will we'll come forth will counteract counteract that now that flips and increasingly discourses around the potential for harm hmm. become more and more more and more important and they're different they're different to 
the traditional focus of censorship. I mean, mm. what what happened? What happened to sex? We're not, you know, yeah. we, we don't talk about sex any anymore. We talk, you know, we talk about, you know, body image, yeah. children feeling peer pressure, yeah. online harassment, a variety of misinformation, a variety of harm. Yeah. Discourses have have come to to be be more important, and uh, those, you know, obviously bring regulators and legislators to the fore much more whereas I think in the first probably up to the sort of mid to late 2000s internet policy tended to be more about faster broadband or computers mm. in schools or mm. getting getting people on on the internet yeah. the, the concerns about what was it was people not the, having enough access to not it. having enough, enough access yeah, yeah now, now the concern is too much yeah. access so yeah. In, in the state in which I live, mobile phones are going to be confiscated in schools. That's Because right. people are spending too much of their time looking at screens. And, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so those sort of discourses. Yeah. So if we go to the other side then, so the, the concern that um, there's too much governance, I guess mm. the area there that's the obvious one to speak about would be the idea that these are now platforms that could be censoring speech. Well, mm. this people got to conceive the internet as a kind of public square, but it's actually a public square that's controlled by these private entities, either in pursuing their own interests or pursuing mm. their interests in cahoots potentially with public authorities. Mm. So could you say a little bit about, about, about that side of it, perhaps? Yeah, well, the, I, th- I think part of, the, part of the concern here is just, just not knowing what is going what's, what's, what's going on and, and also what, what's the basis on which... Uh, are being are being made, and uh, very, I think a very interesting moment in this has been the initiative of uh, now now Meta to create an oversight board of mm. eminent jurists, public figures, human rights lawyers, and so forth, to to provide a platform to adjudicate on their own yeah. their own decisions, and this partly responds to the sense that uh, the the platform company is is both the uh, the administrator and the judge of the content on its own on its own platform and the obvious you know conflict of is- interest issues that yeah. raises at the same time it is an attempt to keep governments at bay mm. so there's a kind of one one phrase that I've come across with regards to this is actual constitutionalism mm. and this is private entities creating quasi-legal frameworks. And if you look at the how the Oversight Board operates it, it has the apparatus of a court, it's intended yeah. to create case law, have legal yeah. precedent, and, and, and so on. Is the sense that these organisations are doing this because it's kind of what they want to do, or is it because they feel there's a kind of implicit threat that if you don't do this, you will be, we will do it for you. The, the, the government or official regulators will do this instead. Both. It's both. Both. So it's, it's partly a company like Facebook or Meta dealing with the recurring concerns about its, its platform and Cambridge Analytica probably being the tipping point yeah. there. It's partly about trying to derive competitive advantage from, from this, from organisations that have the money. So, mm. so the sort of money that's involved with the oversight board is considerable. It's US 130 million in a yeah. in a yeah. trust held held in trust. It can't be taken back mm. by the company. That's uh, just for the oversight board. For the that's just yeah. for the oversight board. Yeah. So this is a serious yeah. investment funds, and 
potentially creates barriers to entry for their competitors. Yeah. But it's also, it is also the sense that, that governments are certainly signalling an intention to, to act in this, in this space. So after years of uh, the major tech companies basically refusing to appear before the US mm. Congress... In 2018, Mark Zuckerberg does appear before the yep. US Congress, and it's been yep. a steady stream of appearances from all of the the tech companies before legislators all around all around the world. And this this sense that they are in a slightly defensive posture, mm. and that they they want to they want to manage the terms of their own regulation. Mm. If I was to put it put yep. that way, whether that be through these kind of quasi self-regulatory entities but not self-regulatory in the sense that you know mm. the advertising industry yeah. or yeah. whatever have had these you yeah. know self self-regulatory codes which you know are widely critiqued as, yeah. as toothless tigers but but these more innovative approaches to that but also keeping but also there's also the point that they are global companies and to the extent that National national laws start to come into play that differentiate what happens mm. in one jurisdiction from what happens in another. Mm. This creates real transaction costs for a global, global well, you, platform. You also, I think, you, when, you, when you were speaking there about given this kind of in, implicit from governments that some form of regulation is required, you then also get this nexus where. I mean, in the case of Facebook or now Meta, they actually hired Nick Clegg, who was the former British yes. Prime Minister, mm, Deputy yes. Prime Minister, who who had advised advised Zuckerberg that he needed to create something like the Oversight Board yeah. to get get on top of this this situation. Mm. Yes, yeah, so Clegg, and and also you know, when we know this from going back to the Snowden revelations about the NSA the, in in the US, there are. There are deep connections between the tech companies yep. and, and state agencies. We can't get away from it. So how do we? How do? How are we supposed to think about the? You know, the the, the famous event of this last few months or year, I guess, is the Elon Musk takeover of, of Twitter. How do mm-hmm. we sort of conceptualise that in this space? Well, it it could it could be the best or worst corporate takeover <laughs> in, in in history. You know, it's it's certainly been certainly been a wild a wild ride. It also it it has also gone against the grain of what was generally happening in the in the platform environment, which would be to say platforms were establishing monopoly or quasi-monopoly positions in key digital markets. This created the expectation that something needed to be done and uh, there's been work bringing Carl Polanyi's yeah. work to mind here in the same way yeah. there was a reaction to the like Industrial Revolution, the, du- yeah. the double yeah. movement. Yeah. And and the tech companies want to, you know, be seen as good corporate citizens, mm. stakeholder capitalism and so on. So they, you know, they respond to these measures, albeit on their own, their own terms. But then what Musk does with Twitter is quite different. And it's going to be, I think, it will be very interesting to see how it plays out in Europe. Because he's effectively stripped back the capacity to to reg, to regulate the platform which is going to present issues in demonstrating compliance with say the digital services act mm. so but it's a very it's a it's a it's a move i mean don't get too far into you know the 
what 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 the psychology of of business leaders that 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 well but it is it is a, it's a it's 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 not an obviously great business decision i, I you know i i i use square which jack dorsey was the co-founder of and i think how much simpler it must be to run a payments a payments management company than it is to run a social media company and probably more profitable so so i think that there's something else driving the the musk the musk moment there with twitter and it is it's been interesting because he it's happening almost in the face of a very large part of part of the user the user base who well one i mean if we think thinking about the economics of this one way i was thinking about it it would be i mean what model of competition should we be thinking about when we're thinking mm. about these platforms so i mean going back to the earlier conversation it seems like a, a sort of neoclassical model of of a kind of quasi-perfect competition isn't really relevant in this kind of space. But you could say that a kind of Schumpeterian model of competition is relevant. So what people are competing on in this case is not identical products, but they are differentiated mm. quite clearly. And what you could say he's trying to do here is differentiate Twitter as a less regulated space or as a different form of regulation yeah. to what's going on in some of these other, the other platforms. So it's a kind of differentiation that is being tried. Mm, he it, it is, but that that's a crowded space. Yeah. Uh, that you have Gab, you have Parler, you have yeah. a variety of um, doing similar yeah, things. Yeah, so-called free speech platforms, and what tends to happen is that uh, yeah, it's it's too small, it's too yeah. much of an echo chamber. It's not. It doesn't have a network effect. It doesn't have it doesn't have a network effect at all. So, so so this people then tend to come back to mm. Twitter, come back to mm. Facebook. And and so on, and you know, real, you know, political campaign budgets are going to spend yeah. on the large, yeah. the large, large platforms. So yes, yeah, so there there are definitely there are definitely ways that you could you differentiate the social media experience. So the you know in in the the wake the wake of the takeover, there was there was you know a, a surge of interest in Mastodon. Yeah. And and this idea of of the Fediverse. Now, I talk talk about being reminded about the difference between sort of Silicon Valley culture and you know European engineering <laughs> culture. <laughs> Mastodon, Mastodon. I, I found I found it unusable. I, I you know I, I found I either stayed within my own little centre of the Fediverse, in which case I kept hearing from the same few people who I heard from on, on each other platform who were kind of evangelists from Macedon, or I was thrown into a completely disorganised maelstrom of, yeah. of things I couldn't, couldn't comprehend. So, so, it, 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 so I guess that, that reminds you that you know, platformization is, is not, not all bad. Having someone curate the experience for you yeah. has has its yeah. has its positive positive sides. So, yeah, over over time, yeah, over time, yeah, there there is certainly that that potential for very different social media experiences. And from the point of view of advert, from the perspective of advertisers, I think we can underestimate the extent to which there currently exists a buyer's market for advertisers. From their point of view, and I've heard industry people talk about this. Okay, Facebook's got. 2.7 billion users, but Yahoo, which everyone assumes is all but dead, yeah. has 300 million. 
Yeah, I and, think that's incredible. Isn't and it? and if they're yeah. if they're offering you know if, if they're offering a rate that's less than ten percent of yeah. what Facebook's offering, that that might be a reasonable spend because they all they all overclaim on the precision of their their targeting, and 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 yeah, they so the the move you know it's also estimated that people are on an average of seven point five platforms. Hmm. So, you know, and people have different experiences on them. So what you right. post on LinkedIn wouldn't be what you post on Twitter, wouldn't be what yeah. you so you don't yeah. you don't post a picture of your lunch on yeah. LinkedIn or and you don't yeah. you don't go off into a, a yeah. rant on yeah. link, LinkedIn, you know. <laughs> you I wish people this. would stop posting their lunches on Facebook. Yeah, true, true. Or or, or, yeah. or or humble bragging yeah. about their new job on yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah. Well, can we just go back to thinking about, I think this sort of Foucauldian idea that I think you're going to mention the, the, the talk that you're giving to us later today about thinking of this in terms of an issue of, of advanced liberal governments or mm. governments or government. Can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, as I understand it, it's a kind of complex balancing act between sort of different forms of regulation or different mm. notions of what a kind of public interest might be and how that can be balanced with individual interests. Sure, sure. I think that the the evolution of thinking around regulation over the last 40 years has been been very, very significant. Uh, the development of sort of hybrid models that don't simply point to a black letter law or mm. command and control mm. model has been very much a feature a feature around around the globe even even you know even in 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 places like china like there would yeah. be critics of the xi jinping moment for coming down too hard with too much too many traditional sort of command and control mm. instruments and whether that's been mm. stifling stifling innovation so so there's so there is so there is there are hybrid models in many respects you'd expect Internet governance to be hybrid. Be yeah. be hybrid. It doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't sit within nation states. It it moves. You know it it has the unique feature. Not unique, but it's impossible to regulate the the internet without the consent of the platforms themselves. Mm-hmm. Unless unless you do say what happens in Ethiopia when if you someone criticizes the government and the the plugs pulled on the network. Assuming you're not going down that path, at some level, the companies have you know the information base, the understanding of the algorithm, etc. Yeah, that they will need to consent to their own their own regulation. So, so that promotes hybridisation, and and in many respects, from the point of view of the companies, it's it's not so much. Whether they're regulated or not, and there, there's a very a couple of very interesting op-eds by Zuckerberg in the Washington Post saying, well, you know, it's it's not around, it's not about whether Facebook's going to be regulated or not. Uh, it's about how wow. it's how it's going to be be regulated, and you know, we want to be leading that 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 conversation. That's that said, there's there there are. There are real legitimacy questions here, and there are certainly organisations in Australia, for example, a group called Reset, uh, which I believe was founded by Macken, 
McIntyre or McEnroe. He he was he was an investor in in Facebook who became a critic a critic of of where the company company had gone. And they they would they would say the the history the history of non compliance is such that you can't leave responsibility for social media regulation with with the platforms. With the company, yeah. Yeah, and so. So there are there are tensions tensions within that. At the same time, also, but at the same time, the the knowledge base from which a lot of regulators and legislators are working from is is highly uneven. We recall when mm. Zuckerberg appeared before the U.S. Congress and he was asked by someone, well, "How do you make money on this?" He said, well, "We sell ads." Mm. You know, it was kind of a level of yeah, baseline understanding that was very very different. Can you just say a little bit about what is what does this what does Foucault mean by this notion of advanced liberal government or people in that space? I, mean, I think that's is yeah. that a term used by Nick Rose or yeah, others? by Nick, Nick Rose yeah. and and that yeah. and that group drawing on Donslow. That it's it's the it's the concept that there, I think it's the concept that there's a degree of reflexivity around yeah. liberal modes modes mm. of govern, government mm. that there's it's a more experimental. Yep. experimental phase it realizes that citizens are actively engaged in the questions around their own governmental yeah practices yeah that it's 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 not it's not neoliberalism I and mean, I don't really buy the term neoliberalism mm. in in mm. some respects but it is it is a it's a it's an inflection point within within liberalism where there's yeah. there's a greater degree of reflexivity and uh, it, some very interestingly sp- on that point I was thinking that uh, and actually, going back to the conversation I was having with D- 